Grab your Bibles while you're standing. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And of course, on Thursday nights, we're studying the great book of Romans. We're going to begin in Romans chapter 8. That's not where we're going to end, but we're going to begin there. Um, The title of the message is Wondering How God Works It All Out for the Good. You got to hear this. Wondering How God Works It All Out for the Good. You got to hear this. Of course, you know this passage. It's one of the most famous and weighty in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his, can someone tell me that next word, son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, you may have a seat at this time. You know, my friend Greg Laurie tells a story of when he used to take his eldest son to the toy store to buy toys. And the first couple of times he did this, and of eldest son, of course, is Christopher, who now is in heaven. But what it looked like is he would take Christopher and he'd say, Christopher, you want to go to the toy store and buy some toys? And of course, Christopher would be so excited about this. But what Greg discovered was Christopher would gravitate towards the toys on the lower shelf, and, uh, which, of course, can be great toys. But his dad, Greg was actually trying to get Christopher to get interested in the upper shelf toys. You know, the really good stuff. The really expensive stuff. But the first couple of times, Christopher was like, Dad, I'm just, I'm excited. I, I like the toys I'm picking on the lower shelves. So what did Greg do? He would buy not only the toys, of course, Christopher picked on the lower shelves, but he would buy the upper shelf toys that he wanted to purchase. And so they would go home, they would have a wonderful time. This happened a few times like this until like the third time, Greg says to Christopher, you want to go to the toy store and buy some toys? Christopher said, yeah, and you choose, Dad. You choose the toy because you know what's really, really good. Now here's the thing. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 identifies a good Right? We know all things work together for the, can someone tell me? Good. Okay, how good is this good? Is this lower shelf good or upper shelf good? I mean, is this really, really good? Who chooses this good? Does this good come from the one who is innately good and only does that which is good? Let me tell you, this, it's critical actually we define this. And we actually allow our Heavenly Father, who is perfectly good and always good and and is consistently good, to choose what is good in our life. Otherwise, let me tell you something. We're going to run the risk of holding on to things that may be good, but they're good based upon the lens of the American dream. And it's going to end up uh, leading to major disillusionment in our life. How many of you are tracking so far with that? In other words, there's some upper shelf good. That's the good of the Heavenly Father. Lower shelf's good. And there's an old adage that a good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. Once we identify, okay, what is this good? That Romans 8, 28 is, is, uh, is calling, is identifying. Once we define, okay, what it means to love God, we know all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let me just tell you something. It's a total life changer. I mean, we will all leave here changed. And I know this is a familiar verse for many of us, but I trust that the Holy Spirit will bring this truth afresh to our hearts tonight. We will all leave here refreshed and revived. Can I hear a big amen to that? I believe it. So here's where we're headed. Okay, just imagine this. Imagine a target, all right? And of course, there's a bullseye in a target, and you have these rings around the bullseye. And the bullseye is Romans 8, 28 and 29. And in that bullseye is your life in Christ. Because this is a verse that so beautifully identifies what it is to be in Jesus, okay? And in addition to that, in that bullseye is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Then you have rings around the bullseye. So 
how we're going to answer what is this good, uh, what is the purpose being worked out, what, what is the upper shelf good things that the Heavenly Father chooses for us. Well, it's going to be defined for us in the most immediate context. In addition to that, we need broader perspectives of what the scriptures give us. So for that, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. So this is kind of an outer ring. Mark chapter 1. How do we know all things work together for the good to those who love God and called according to his purpose? Let's start with Mark chapter 1. And the first point I want to underscore is the gospel is much more powerful than is often represented. It's true. The gospel is a whole lot more powerful. It's a whole lot greater than we often identify it as such. And and I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One is we try to simplify the gospel message so that our unbelieving friends can get it. We try to, you know, contextualize the gospel. But what ends up happening is we oversimplify it and we end up sterilizing it. So look, this is so critical because I'm telling you, honestly, if we're going to get, hey, how do we know all things work together for the good to those who love God, are called according to his purpose? It's like we need a clear picture of really what the gospel is. Hey, check out Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark pens the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What an incredible statement that is. Now, now look, here's the thing. Oftentimes when we hear the term gospel, we think, okay, gospel means good news. And the good news is there's a God and God loves us, right? That's true. And the good news is that he sent his son to bear our sins. He resurrected, conquered the grave. And and he's knocking the door of our heart. He wants to come and give us intimate relationship with him and hope beyond the grave. All of that is true. But that is an a insufficient picture, really, of what the gospel is. And let me tell you one of the reasons why that is. It's because such a simplification puts great emphasis that the gospel is a future reality. It's like the Lord, like a superman, came down to rescue us from big bad earth, and he wants to take us away to this euphorial place called heaven. Look, there is hope beyond the grave. And thank God there's life in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is we need a more clear picture. That definition or that simplification is not enough to set our lives in the trajectory that the Lord has intended for us. We really need to rediscover what the gospel means. Because let me just tell you something. The terms that are used by Mark here in the first century, in a first century context, are nothing short of revolutionary. They are explosive. They are politically charged. In fact, this statement, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, please hear this, is a major statement confronting the self-defeating and destructive systems and schemes that existed during the time uh, in the first century. It's, it's majorly confronting the worldview of the day. I mean, just think of like when our forefathers in America wrote the Declaration of Independence and finally when King George opened that letter and read it, it was like, whoa. And I am telling you right now, when Mark writes this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is like revolutionary. And here's why. If you asked anybody in the Roman Empire who the Son of God might be, the politically correct answer would be the Emperor Augustus, the Son of Caesar, the divine. I mean, it's Augustus who launched the Pax Romana, the new global order. And if you asked anybody in the Roman Empire, What gospel means, they would say, oh, that's a political term. That's associated with the emperor. Good news of a new world order under the son of God, the son of divine, a Caesar, Augustus, and the emperors. And this means, therefore, that the terms in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, need to be defined in the most immediate context in which they're found and the context of Scripture as a whole. So if you look with me in this chapter, please look at verse 14 and 15. When Jesus began preaching the gospel, he had just come from a 
public Jewish ritual purification, i.e. baptized, when at that time a voice from the sky said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, let me tell you something. For the father to declare Jesus to be the son signified that he was the anticipated king. Because to be God's son is synonymous with being the king of Israel. And therefore, look at verse 15, when Jesus declared the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Look up here for a second. Watch this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, what is necessary is you change radically the way you think. Because repent is the Greek word metanoi, means to change the way you think. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. And that is that God has become king to come to create an entire new reality in his son. It's not like, don't like judge it or view it or interpret it as, as how the Romans would use it. Oh, this is so much bigger than that. Can I hear a big amen to that? So he's like, hey, you, you, you guys got to have to have a major paradigm shift in the way. I'm going to try to, hold on a second. I'm going to try to fix this. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. See, when you get older, you just, you don't, you just, you don't blush. You don't get ready. You just get, it's just like whatever. But believe me, if this was 20 years ago, I'd be <laughs> melting down. But I have to take a moment, all right? And then you guys back there, I know you're going to make the right adjustments. All right. So this means, therefore, check this out, that in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, I mean, this is revolutionary. I mean, we're talking about like the most important turning point in history. And therefore, the original followers of Jesus... A small band of Jews from the north are way ahead of their time. They are now the chief leaders in the world. Jesus identifies them as salt, the preserving influence of the world, light to embody justice and righteousness on planet earth, to help the world connect the dots that there is a heavenly father and that he has a great plan for man. So watch, the gospel is, yeah, hope beyond the grave, no doubt about it, But actually, Jesus came not to take us out of the world. He actually came to lead a regeneration that we would be a part of transforming our generation in his name. That's just a little bit of a different emphasis than we often hear. And I got to tell you, this is important to contextualize today because while we're not in the Roman Empire here in America What you may not know is that the fathers of the American Constitution actually borrowed a line from the great Roman poet Virgil in his poem, Novus Ordo. And it was the phrase, a new world order, or excuse me, a new order of the ages. And this phrase was used during the time of Augustus to promote a new global order. And, And what some of our founding fathers were claiming is that America will accomplish that which the Roman Empire was unable to accomplish. Even Jesus of Nazareth was unable to accomplish. And while our country is a phenomenal country, can I hear a big amen to that? Like, really? And for 250 years has been a beacon of hope and healing to immigrants throughout the world. And as the great, you know, singer from the band U2, Bono, said America is the best idea the world has ever come up with, an idea bound up in justice and equality for all. Hey, listen, we got to ask ourselves. I mean, the founding of our country is we broke away from an unjust king in England. And now it's like our culture is fast breaking away from the king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court reflected this when they wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. It's like, oh my goodness, have we taken the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness way, way too far? I mean, is is self the new sovereign? You know, is, is freedom of choice without limits the new sacred? 
Or are we legalizing our own destruction? I mean, our forefathers fought so that we could determine right allegiance and that we could worship, you know, whatever God, and of course, hopefully the true and living God in the Lord Jesus. But listen, please listen. It's critical in this hour we just rediscover the gospel that Jesus, and I know you know this, but Jesus is the king. That in him, he is the king of a kingdom that will never break down. And that as Americans, it's like, hey, if we were to rate our allegiance, and it's like, okay, you know, where's your allegiance at? Um, you know, uh, you know are, you like, are you a Dodger fan? Uh, are, you know, are you an Angels fan? Are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Um, are you an American? Are you a monarchist? Hopefully, number one would be, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian. My chief allegiance is to the chief monarch king, the Lord Jesus himself. That is absolute critical message to embrace today. Very, very important. And that means this. That means like, hey, you know, if he's our chief allegiance, well, let me just put it this way. Like, I didn't choose to be white. I don't want him to freak you out. But, you know, I didn't choose him, right? <laughs> okay. So the thing is, is that, let me just say it this way, like, um, I don't, like, follow white people. And I would suggest you don't follow white people. I'll probably get the biggest amen, like, I've ever heard right now if I called for it, okay? And then check it out. Don't follow black people either. Don't follow Puerto Ricans, okay? No, hang in there. I mean, <laughs> love the food, just hold on, Okay? Don't follow Jews. Don't follow Arabs. Follow Jesus Christ. He's the king. Hey, listen, he's the great son unto us. The child is born. The son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice for, that, for this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I love that. Turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be really quick. We're getting closer to the bullseye. I want you to see this. Here's point number two, and that is this, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus not only means that we go to heaven in Christ, as he is our Lord and Savior, but it also means that Jesus is really making all things new in himself, starting right now. That's very important to get. Paul is pinning in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. He says, moreover, brother, and I declare to you the gospel, that Christ died, he goes on to say, Christ died for our sins, Verse 4, according to the scriptures. And then he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. Then he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. If I were to ask you what the gospel is in this context here, you would say, well, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is. But we have to ask what it means. I mean, what does his death mean? What does his burial mean? What does his resurrection mean? His resurrection was a demonstration that he's begun to create all things new in himself. And if you go down to verse 25, it says, For he himself, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be destroyed. It is death. All enemies under the feet of Jesus. Like, what are we talking about? How about the enemies of racism and hatred and injustice? I mean, the gospel is really big and really beautiful. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's really awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about going to heaven. But like Jesus in himself, he creates all things new in himself. And he is the allegiance that is necessary for the wholeness and the shalom and the healing that he's intended all of us to experience. 
And in fact, the Bible tells us creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation actually is groaning and labors with birth pains until now. Not only that, but we also know we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. It's like the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection. Jesus takes upon himself the brokenness of the world. He's treated as if he's committed every stinking sin in human history. He takes it upon himself. He absorbs it. He conquers the grave. He conquers judgment. And his bodily resurrection says, look, now now, here's what's happening as I'm making all things new in myself. He is awesome. All right, now look, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. We're going to get closer to the bullseye. Here's another ring. How do we know all things work together for the good? In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, and I'm actually going to read this from the New International Version, but the third point is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit actually brings the good Heavenly Father into our life intimately. I mean, how do we know He works all things out for the good? It's like, oh my goodness, there's a personal encounter, more more personal, more beautiful, more intimate than we could ever imagine. It's like the Lord actually puts His DNA in us. His, his very spirit indwells us. And I'll tell you, this cannot be underscored enough. To have relationship with God means something radical took place. And that is the Lord himself takes residence in our life. So that means it's something a whole lot more than just something psychological, right? It's a personal encounter with the true and living God. And and let me just say, maybe you're here for the first time. I'm so glad you're here with us. But I really believe that the Lord wants to come into your life tonight. That tonight you're going to be learning a bunch of things. But he says he stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone would hear his voice and open the door from the inside, I'm going to tell you how you can do that in just a little bit, that he will literally come in to our lives. I want want you to see this. This is very important. We have it over the screen. Watch this. And, And like, who comes into our life? And what happens? The spirit you received does not make you, everybody say the next word, does not make you slaves, which almost sounds so archaic. It's like, you know, unfortunately, we had slavery in our country and so glad it no longer exists. In other forms, unfortunately, it does. But it's like, you know, Paul, what do you mean by that? There are a lot of slaves in the first century. We got to talk about it. So that you live in fear. So watch. A spirit of us being a slave or a slave mentality is like being under fear all the time. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, let's all say it, Father. Let me say, let me tell you, if the Apostle Paul were here, he, he might say this to me. You know, if he was up here, say, Greg, let me ask you something. Um, when you're feeling good, and I said, okay, like, feeling good? Yeah. When you're feeling good, and, and, and I say, okay, I know what you're talking about, like when I'm feeling good. And generally I feel really good when I have about three espressos. But it's like when you're feeling good. Okay, watch this. Okay, keep going. And when you're doing good, like what do you mean doing good? Like professionally? Yeah. Morally? Yeah. And when you're looking good. I mean like looking good like new haircut? I mean, no, no. When you feel like your image is in the right place and other people are perceiving you the way you want them to perceive you. I'm just curious, how do you feel during that time? I mean, does it give you a little skip in your step? You feel a little extra confident? And, you know, if I were honest, I would say, yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, Paul, to be frank with you, when I'm feeling good and doing good and I'm looking good, um, you know, I, I, I do feel a bit confident. Okay, he would say, well, look, you guys call that a performance-based mentality, but I call that a slave mentality. And the reason why I call it a slave mentality is because, is because you 
are basing your sense of well-being on your performance. And, and you're basing your sense of well-being upon how people perceive you. You're basing your sense of well-being based upon whether you are doing well morally or whether you're doing well professionally. And if there's some ups and downs in that area, then it's like, oh my goodness, you're living consistently under the umbrella of fear, under the umbrella of insecurity. And that is a slave mentality. That is not what takes place when, of course, we come to Christ. There's this major paradigm shift and even rescue in our life. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's true. Because let me just tell you something. The slave mentality, it's, it's like this constant state of fear and insecurity and, and, and kind of guilt because it's based upon the ebbs and flows of your performance and how other people perceive you. And I got to tell you, this morphs all kinds of crazy ways. One person said, you know, you don't feel loved unless you feel then morally superior. And therefore, you need to see the faults in other people. You need to listen to gossip and, uh, and, and spread it. And gossip makes you feel powerful, makes you feel lovable. And that's the reason it's salacious and delicious, both to listen to and give, because it makes you feel superior. Performance-oriented identity has to, has to feel superior to other people in order to feel loved. You have to be critical. You have to find fault in people everywhere. You have to step on others to promote yourself. It's a terrible existence. And the reality is, it's like you don't even live up to your own standards, so you're always dealing with guilt, and it leads to self-protection, and it leads to hiding, and it leads to all kinds of crazy things that pile up in our life. The spirit that indwells us brings a relationship with the Heavenly Father that the basis of which is not our performance. It's based on unconditional love. It's based upon what Jesus has done for us. And when Jesus said, you know, this is how we ought to pray, he didn't say, you know, say our boss who art in heaven or our coach who art in heaven or our general who art in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven. And let me tell you, when the Lord was on the cross, do you know the veil in the temple that separates the holy, holy place from the Holy of Holies? The Holy of Holies, if you're here for the first time, is a place that spoke of where God's presence existed. And, and the high priest could only enter into this place one time a year. We don't have time to develop that. But when Jesus gave his life on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. I, I mean, it was if... It was if, like the father, like an Orthodox Jew, who was under so much pain and conflict, tore his garment from top to bottom, exposing his chest. It's like when the Lord gave his life on the cross, the father's just like, man, okay, it's through my son that there's intimacy and relationship and identity in me. Can I hear a big amen to that or what? And let me tell you something, deep down inside, we're all longing for intimacy with our Father. By the way, according to the Talmud, God did not accept the Day of Atonement sacrifices for the last 40 years before the destruction of the Second Temple. The tearing of the veil was not only a sign of access to the Heavenly Father, for all people through Jesus, but it demonstrated that the Jewish Messiah is the answer really to ethnic reconciliation. It's true. Because let me tell you, if you went to the temple in Jerusalem, it was terribly divided. Walls between non-Jews to Jewish women to Jewish men. And if you were a non-Jew, you could not enter into the Jewish court. They had a sign there, you do, you're responsible for your death, you'll be put to death immediately. And for that veil to be torn, you talk about the answer to ethnic reconciliation. Paul addressed this in Ephesians when he said, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation so as to create in himself one new man from two, though 
Through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It's like, okay, we're getting close to the, the bullseye here. We're getting much closer to it. We're like rediscovering what the gospel is. We, we now know that his death, burial, and resurrection speaks to the fact that he's creating all things new in himself. We know that the Lord takes intimate uh, relationship with us by his spirit, whereby now we have the most beautiful relationship based on unconditional love, Jesus' performance, not our performance. Okay, you guys, I, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. You've got to see this. Hebrews chapter 12. And as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 12, here's the fourth point. Jesus despised, he despised his circumstances, and yet the Father who worked all things out for the good, because now Jesus sits on the throne, we are going to develop this. This is very, very important. We're getting close to the bullseye, getting closer and closer. You know, a couple of months ago, I had the honor to actually teach this very passage, and I want to go back to it for for a very specific reason. Check out chapter 12, verse 1. We also, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with, what's the next word, you guys? Endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the, can someone tell me the next word? Shame. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, whoa. Hey, let me ask you, are you going through a difficult time in your life? I mean, we've all been there, but I know some of you are going through a really intense trial. In principle, this passage is telling us that Jesus actually was experiencing realities for which he totally despised. He totally despised the shame, even though he was doing the right thing. He was trusting the Heavenly Father. He was honoring him. And of course, this is in the reference to the fact that Jesus actually was treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history. He gave his, his life on the cross for us. So he despises this for a few reasons. One, he despises that evil exists. And the second reason is he despises the fact that he's being treated for the source of the evil. And, and yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured, he endured and now he's at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is very important. The Bible tells us that the Lord, our Lord Jesus, is the captain of our salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith. So he could say to us in principle, look, I endured in life through very difficult times. I mean, the worst that you could ever experience. I was treated as if I committed every stinking sin in human history. I I despised those circumstances, but endured and trusted the Heavenly Father. And he says to us that he wants us to also endure. It's absolutely critical amidst, this is very important to understand, amidst times of difficulty and challenge. And even, look, you could be going through something I mean, relational or, or financial or emotional or something. It's just you flat out despise. And, and, it, and, and that's okay to despise certain circumstances. But, but what the Lord wants us to recognize is, is that the Father in our life is always at work. And what's critical is he, he wants us to endure, to never give up. We talked about it a couple of months ago, but it's like Christianity is like riding a bicycle. You just need to keep pedaling. Can, can I hear a big amen to that? Just keep pedaling. Keep moving forward. Because if you stop, then he can't train you, the Father, in righteousness. 
And this gets actually, it's like we know all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose in our life? Actually, to train us to be more like Jesus. To conform us into his image. We know all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. His purpose is what? Intimacy with the Father being conformed to the image of Jesus himself. That means what he's doing is he's changing you to change then circumstances. And these forces that are in our life, I mean, listen, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, the, the, the popular idea is that the subconscious is what's influencing our life. It was uning and freuding and an argument. Today, the evolutionary biologists would say that what moves our life is the chemicals in our body. That's why we're attracted to one another. Hey, no, no, that's just a bunch of garbage. As believers, I'll tell you the forces in our life. And they're not forces, they're persons. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are always at work in our life, working out. Even though we are going through incredibly difficult times, they are working in our life, our highest good, making us more like Jesus. And this means that like Jesus, you can despise your present circumstances as faith does not deny the reality of pain, as faith actually doesn't deny stress, the reality of it, or shattered dreams. But through faith and through the lens of what is true, we can rest that he's working it all out for the good. So it's like, keep pedaling. And please look at, look at verse 2. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. I mean, this is so critical to understand how he's working all things out for the good. What does that mean? Well, the fact that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father speaks of the fact that he ascended to heaven. How many of you know, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven? Okay, when he did, it was a demonstration to the disciples that in fact he is the king. Do we have any evidence of this? Oh man, Peter, James, and John, of course they're all Jews. They were staunch monotheists. They all believed in one true and living God. Now they're believing that Jesus is God. They are convinced he conquered the grave. And when he ascended to heaven, it wasn't some just spatial thing. It was a demonstration that, in fact, he is the king. And one person said this. It means he's ruling over and controlling all of history towards its final goal in which the church, the new people of God, are finally and fully liberated. And along with them, the, the whole world is renewed. And at that time, there will be no more suffering, evil, or death because Jesus' saving and restoring work will be complete. To put it simply, Jesus is directing a cosmic transition plan, one that will bring about new, a new heaven and a new earth. As ascended Lord, he is spreading the gospel, building up his church by working in the hearts of people while he guides all the events of history towards a glorious end. And we are a part of it. We know all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his We know. We, we are the church. We are in Christ. We win because Jesus won. Can I hear a big amen to that? We know all things work together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And listen, in context, it's like maybe you're a Jewish believer here and you're thinking, hey, you know what? I, I came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm ethnic Israel. And yet to believe in Jesus is definitely I'm the minority. Yeah, you're the remnant, actually. But you can know, you can know all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because one day when Jesus returns, all Israel will be saved. I love what this one person said. The most reasonable response to what? The fact that he's the king would be to trust and obey him, whether convenient, comfortable, or popular. Because after all, the king is innately good and sovereign. 
His directives are based on full understanding. They're not weighed by temporary perspectives and circumstances. They are bigger than one's lifetime on earth. The Lord has a plan in Christ that is unfolding and nothing will stop it. And when you are transformed by the greatest reality of all, the Lord Jesus, you make yourself available to him to do your part and to trust him with the consequences. In fact, doing what is right, loving, forgiving, serving, making Jesus known, remaining faithful to your marital covenant, because it is right, as an end in itself, is evidence that we have been transformed by the vision that Jesus is the king. And when that takes place, it's like we're better people for it. I'm a better husband for it, a better man for it. You're a better individual in your home. It's just like I've seen the truth. And we do what is right because it is right. And we know that all things are working out for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I got one more point. I hope it's not too late. What time is it? It is 8.15. Yes. Yes. Okay. One more point. This is a very important one. Number five, our Father's always working on our behalf, whether it be swiftly or slowly. I, you know what? Let me just share something with you. Tonight, like, here's what I say to you. Hey, tonight's message is not a message like, hey, you know, I want you to try harder and just leave here and, and add something to your to-do list. I mean, maybe the Lord is speaking about something specific. I just want to encourage you to believe more. Because I'm going to tell you something. We're all at Dothan. What? Yeah, we're all there. One way or shape or form. Dawson. Yeah, that's where Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit. Then sold him into slavery. How many of you know the story of Joseph out of curiosity? Okay, right? So it's like you're here for the first time. Big story in the Bible. Brothers jealous of their little brother. (laughs) It's crazy. Major betrayal, intentional wounding. Sold him to a caravan in Egypt. Long story short, the little brother goes through ups and downs, just situations, unjust situations, trusting God, ends up second in command in Egypt, becoming actually, because of incredible administration and management, we don't have time to develop, ends up becoming really like the savior of Egypt, including Israel. A type of Jesus, really. But the rejected one is the savior. Dothan? Oh, years later, Elisha. It's like, oh my goodness gracious, here our enemies are before us. They're crying out to the true and living God for rescue. The Lord swiftly, swiftly blinds their enemies and rescues them. So what's the point? The point is this. We got a good papa. And he works slowly, but he is working it all out for the good. And he works in swiftness. Can I hear a big amen to that? And that's the truth in your life. Here's the thing. The Bible says we need to be filled with the Spirit. That is a command. It's a great command. What does it mean? Well, it's contrasted to not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, waste, no cumulative value. If you get buzzed, here's what ends up happening. When you get intoxicated, you have a sense of joy and maybe even courage and boldness and a sense of well-being, but it's not based on reality. No, actually, it's blinding you. It's dropping your inhibitions. I mean, you you know, you're bold, you're you're courageous, but you're being stupid. So intoxication gives you a sense of joy and merriment and maybe courage and sense of well-being and uh, you just feel like dancing and rocking and rolling, but it's not based upon reality. However, when you're spirit-filled, there's, there's a joy, there's a courage, there's a boldness, there's a sense of well-being that is based upon the greatest realities of all, that we are in Christ. And let me share something with you. Here's the thing that we have to be, I want us to be careful of, I want to be sensitive tonight, is that tonight this is not a lecture. The Lord is with us. 
we have heard his word and what he wants to do in all of our hearts is fill us with the spirit afresh again and again and again and again because the Holy Spirit is like a spotlight that shines the truth of who we are in our Father's eyes in Christ. So in other words, in other words, the saying it is, is that the Holy Spirit afresh will take the realities that we have been studying and really personalize it with all of us here tonight. That's what our Lord wants to do. Can I hear a big amen to that? So here's the thing. In a little bit, we, let's pray. And actually, I want you to come forward in a little bit because we're going to worship and we're going to ask the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit. And I want to read a few scriptures to you that I trust the Holy Spirit will just pop and really bring comfort to you, not based upon something emotional, based upon reality, a joy, not something hyped, but something that's based upon the greatest reality of all and a greater boldness in our lives. This is what the Holy Spirit does. But before we do that, let me just say this. Jesus said he stands at the door of our lives and he knocks. And if anybody would hear his voice and open the door, he will come in. And I just want you to know that the Lord loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He's protective of you. He's fighting for you. He wants to win your heart. You say, like, what are you talking about? Let me tell you, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And he demonstrated that great love. And that is Jesus went to Jerusalem and with outstretched arms there on the cross. It could be said he reached up, he took the hand of the Father, and with the other hand he reaches out to every single human being. But listen, you need to take his hand because the Lord coming into your life, forgiving you of your sins, yes, giving you hope beyond the grave, making you his child, it doesn't take place by osmosis. You have to respond to it. You say, well, great, what do I need to do? Number one, recognize what the Lord has done for you. He not only created you, but he's revealed himself to you, and he's doing that tonight. He revealed himself in the person of his son, who gave his life on the cross three days later, resurrected, conquered the grave. I mean, there's a plan for men. We're not byproducts of mindless nature. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. The greatest sin is to say no to who Jesus is, to reject him as Savior and Lord. That's the greatest sin for which there is no forgiveness. If someone continues to reject him, there's no hope. But I don't believe anybody will do that here tonight. I believe you're going to come to him. Number two, then, you need to repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. Change the way you think. It's like he said there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way. He said there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. Few be that find it. It's like, okay, I'm moving in one direction, and then I'm going to turn. I'm going to make a U-turn in life, and I'm going to follow Jesus. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except it be through me. Listen, I have never known someone to give a good reason for saying no to Jesus. Ever. The Bible says that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What do I need to do? Recognize what he's done for you. Repent. Receive him. He's really just a prayer away. You can call upon him this morning, and I'd love to lead you in a word of prayer. And it's critical that you do it now. Because the Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Today is the day of salvation. So if you're thinking, man, that's me. Because I've got to tell you, years ago, I was like in your seat. And I heard a message similar to this. And my chest was pounding like, man, the Lord is speaking to me. He's drawing me to himself. Then look, let's settle that. Let's make sure no one leaves here without Jesus Christ in their heart. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah, amen. Let's, yeah, let's pray. Father, Father, you are beautiful, Papa. You're beautiful. You're, you are beautiful and indescribable and holy and a whole lot more. And, and, and I just want to pray now, just while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want to pray, Lord, for anyone here. Maybe there's one person, maybe there's 10 people, maybe there's 20, who have yet to take a stand. Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe they know you exist. 
But you've said in your word, even Satan knows that you exist and believes that, in a, that, that you exist. But Lord, you stand at the door of our hearts and you're standing at the door of their hearts. And you're asking for invitation to be formally invited to come into their life. And Lord, I pray, open their eyes, help them do that. These next few moments, may no one leave here having not embraced you as Savior. Lord, we pray for the greatest miracle to take place these next few moments. That is hearts turning to you as Savior and Lord. And just while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, how many of you would say, you know, great, pray for me? Because I'd like to receive Christ. You know, I want him to come into my life. I want him to forgive me of my sins. I want to be in his kingdom that never breaks down. I get it. I see it. I want it that settled. If that's you, I want you to raise up your hand right now. Let me pray for you. Just slip up your hand. And by raising your hand, you'd be saying, yes, that's me. God bless you in the back. Awesome. I see you. Anybody else in the front, in the back, in the side, you would like to receive Christ. God bless you. Awesome. You know, Billy, God bless you. You know, Billy Graham, the great preacher, said he was the last one to respond. God bless you. God bless you. I see your hand. You can put your hand down afterwards. Anybody else, if you would like to receive Christ, you raise up your hand. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer right where you're at to receive Jesus. To, and, he, and he's going to come into your life. The Bible says his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Man, anybody else, you raise up your hand if you haven't already. Let me pray for you. God bless you. Awesome. God bless you. Hey, listen, here's, I, I, here's what I want you to do. My, my friends, I'll raise your hand. I, I, I want you to stand where you're seated. And I'll tell you why. Because whenever Jesus called people, he, all, he always called them publicly. And he said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father which is in heaven. But if you deny me, I'll also deny you. Listen, there's something powerful about taking a stand. Trust me on this, seriously. And one way to look at it is like, man, if we can't stand in the midst of hundreds of friends who love you and are going to who are going to be praying for you. It's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to stand once you leave here. So those of you who raise your hand, you stand up. And the Lord's speaking to you as so a stand up right now. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. You're not going to be the only one. There's others that raise your hand. You stand. God bless you guys. God bless you. Anybody else? You stand. God bless you. Proud of you. Good job. Anybody else? You'd like to receive Christ, you stand. Remain standing while I lead you in a word of prayer. God bless you. Anybody else, these final moments, you, you stand. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. God, so proud of you. Awesome. Hey, pray with me. Those of you who are standing, man, the Lord loves you with everything. I mean, I, I can imagine you had no idea you'd be standing in a church after a message like this. But I got to tell you, the Lord knew because he's had his eyes on you for a long time. He's been running you down. He cares for you. And he wants to come into your life. So pray this prayer out loud with me. You don't have to shout it, but say it with me because the Lord will honor this. The Bible says if you confess Jesus with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be safe. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and to be my Lord. Thank you for dying for me, paying the debt of my sin that separates me from you. I believe in you, Lord. I turn to you tonight. Come into my life. Fill me with the life of God. Teach me to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing me forgiving me, coming into my life and making me your child. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, 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 amen.